Please turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. Jonah, chapter 3. Please join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before thee once again this Lord's Day. God, we ask for thy help. We ask for thy blessing upon the preaching of thy word. That would help us to hear thy truth, to discard what is untrue, to be helped, aided, carried along by thy Holy Spirit. Lord, let us grow in our understanding of our need for thee. Lord, that we might see thee as our only good in this world or the next, our only comfort in all things. God, that we might see thy son Jesus lifted up in our lives and have a desire to share his message. That Christ, oh Christ, that thou would be our treasure to live is Thee, O Christ, our Lord, our Savior. They would think nothing of our lives if they be not lived for Thy glory. Holy Spirit, please aid us in the hearing of Thy Word and the applying of it. Please aid us in the living of this life. Lord, grant us more humility, more faith, more grace, more power to live for Thee. I pray now for these thy people who sit before me, that their ears may be opened, their hearts softened, and thy spirit may speak to them, aid them, grant them faith and repentance and joy and love. Lord, without thee, we can do no thing. Please be with us now, O Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonah chapter 3, continuing on in our exposition, we come once again to this book, this strange book, wherein the prophet whose name, who is named, the book is named after him, is the antagonist. He's the bad guy. This book that has taught us so much already about the nature of true faith, the nature of following after God. The nature of turning away from sin. We've seen what the prophet has gone through. That he was supposed to be the faithful minister of the gospel. Yet he became the epitome of unfaithfulness and a symbol of repentance. We saw last week in chapter 2. Jonah brought low. Humbled by God. He repented of his sin. He proclaimed his hope in God and the theme of the book. Chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord. He renewed his obedience toward God. And thus, God delivered him from the fish's belly, causing the fish to vomit him up upon the dry ground. Now Jonah must obey. Now Jonah must obey. Previously, he disobeyed. Now comes the test of his repentance. Now comes the test. Was it true? Will God still use him? Or shall he be a castaway? God often strikes straight blows, you've heard, with crooked sticks. And Jonah is certainly such a stick. God had decreed the salvation of the Ninevites. And his will shall not be thwarted, regardless of what the prophet Jonah does or does not do. When God determines to save a people or a person, an individual, that person shall be saved. For he has bought and paid for them in the redemption of Christ. As Spurgeon was fond of saying, God's wills and shalls are wills and shalls indeed. So dear congregation, let us seek the Lord our God, praying for his enlightening as we continue on in our exposition. Let us read chapter 3. Hear the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. 
So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. And he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Let us notice four points in our text this afternoon. Number one, God's second calling of Jonah. Number two, Jonah's preaching. Number three, Nineveh's repentance. And number four, God's salvation. So our first point, God calls Jonah a second time. This is found in verses 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. God God gave Jonah a second chance. A second chance. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time. Although Jonah was undeserving, although Jonah had done everything possible to revoke this calling, yet God gave him another chance. Jonah had now come to his senses, as it were, after the great trial of the fish's belly. He had made fresh repentance. Preaching what God told him to preach, where God told him to preach, was Jonah's entire life's work, as we saw in other parts of Scripture. But now, when the call to go to Nineveh originally came, it was too much for his pride to bear. It was almost as if he said, what? Preach unto the Ninevites? The enemies of Israel? I cannot do such a thing, O Lord. These people are far too evil for me. These people are far too bad for thy message. I shall not do it. I cannot do it. The Apostle Peter, we see something similar in the book of Acts. The Apostle Peter in the early church stumbled at God's bringing in of the Gentiles, you remember. It took not only the command of God in a vision... To Peter, but also the witnessing of the Gentiles coming to faith in a revival with the baptism of the Holy Spirit falling upon them for Peter to get the picture in Acts 10. And it was not until he heard a voice a second time in his vision saying, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common, that Peter really understood and obeyed. So too with us oftentimes. We often want to be used of God. We want to share the gospel. We want to evangelize and see people come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We want to be part of some revival or some great move of God and be used of him to build his kingdom on earth. And we sit and we say, well and good, that's exciting. I would love to be part of something like that. When we're discussing evangelism, while we're discussing going out and sharing the gospel, we're thinking about those in our lives that we'd love to share the gospel with and see come to salvation. But then when we're face-to-face with some, someone, sometimes it then hits us that we do not particularly like this person. It's not going as well as we'd hoped. They're not really receptive. And we go, Lord, I would like someone different. I want somebody who, as soon as my words hit, enter their ears, they're going to fall down on their knees, grasp my shoes, and say, what shall I do to be saved, sir? Those are the people. Send me to those people, O oh Lord. If we wish to be used of God, we must be used of God how he pleases to use us. We can't pick and choose what we're going to obey as we see with Jonah. That's why Jonah was given a specific message. And this was Jonah's initial problem. He was unwilling to be used by God how God had determined to use him. But now he has come to his senses, being beaten into submission through that trial 
in the great fish's belly. Now God gives him a second chance. Gives him the same call that he had given him before. You see this in verse 2. Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. Dear church, let us, let us swiftly obey God when he gives us fresh opportunities to obey him. Maybe we've previously disobeyed, we've previously failed in that aspect. And when God gives us a fresh opportunity to obey him, let us be quick to do so. We do not know whether God will give us another opportunity to share with that individual or not. So obey the first time, and if you fail, which we all do, be quick to remedy, be quick to repent, and be quick to then look for opportunities God gives you and take them. Do not waste another one. You might have a close family member or a close friend or a neighbor or someone you work with that you have a particular affection towards. You would love to see them come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Don't waste the opportunities. You might not get another. For death is not a respecter of persons nor times. And it can come upon all of us in the blink of an eye. Next, God ordained the place where Jonah was to preach. He gave him a second chance, and he also ordained where he was to preach. We can notice something else about this verse. It was God who ordained it. He got to decide who he was going to preach to, not Jonah. God chooses to save whomsoever he wills. It's according to his good pleasure and election. He chooses, not us. However, we cannot and may not use God's gracious election, his sovereign mercy whom he giveth unto whomever he will as an excuse not to preach unto all creation, as Mark 16, 15 says. Our preaching as believers, our ministering to those around us is the means through which God saves his elect people. Through which God saves his elect people. We know not who they are, But God does, and God will make sure they hear the proclamation. He will bring them to salvation through gospel proclamation. Spurgeon often said, we don't know who's elect, so I'm going to preach to everyone. If God would paint a big E on the back of the elect, I would focus my work only towards them. But since he has not, I will preach freely unto all people. Now, it's good for us, dear church, to pray to God before sharing the gospel both for God's supernatural aid, without which no one will be saved, as well as for God's guidance. The psalmist prays in Psalm 119, 133, order my steps in thy word. We need to ask God, as the apostle Paul did, for open doors in ministry. Do not kick in a door. Do not kick in a door and force a gospel opportunity. But, Walk through the doors that are open to you. We cannot just sit back and assume that all the doors are shut because we're afraid of kicking in a door. That used to be something I struggle with and do sometimes as well. Well, I don't really know. I'm kind of testing the waters for 15, 20 minutes with somebody, seeing if there's just a natural opportunity. Sometimes you have to see if the door is open. Begin sharing the gospel with them. Paul Washer gave an example of this when he was teaching a class on evangelism. When we sit down with people, we don't want to kick the door in, right? And just shove the gospel down their throats. We want to wait for a door to open. But there's a way to go about this that's still loving towards people and still using every opportunity God gives you. He says that he was sitting on a plane with a guy one time. He obviously flies around a lot. And he asked the man, may I share the gospel with you? The guy said, I'm not interested. Okay. We oftentimes kind of think, then, okay, the conversation's over. Well, he had three hours with this guy, so he said, all right, let's talk about whatever you want to talk about, and he just loved the man. And when the guy got up to leave, they landed, the guy looked at him and said, I'm sorry, I should have let you talk. You sat and listened to everything I wanted to talk about, I should have let you talk. And that guy was convicted. And next time somebody tries to share the gospel with him, I bet he listens. So when a door closes, that doesn't mean that our love for that person should end. It doesn't mean that we should just walk away angry or change the subject. We still must love them where they're at. And God will open a door, hopefully. We must pray for a door to be opened. We must actually care about the people in front of us. God ordained the place and the people. He also ordained the message. Notice it was God's 
message which Jonah was to preach. In verse 2 he said, Preach unto it, to Nineveh, the preaching that I bid thee. Our message as preachers and as Christians is not our own. It's not our own. We are not the authors of some message. We are merely proclaimers and deliverers of one. The very words God uses in the scriptures for us as gospel preachers proves this very point. Remember the Apostle Paul says this very thing about his own ministry in 2 Timothy 1.11. He says, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. You not say somebody who's going to cleverly come up with something. A preacher is nothing else than a herald. A herald. One who proclaims an edict that the king gave him. He doesn't come up with one. He's sent out to simply proclaim that message. This is what the message is. Don't add any of your own stuff into it. Not one who comes up with his own message. An apostle is an ambassador who represents the king and his message. A teacher is one who explains the content which he himself has been taught. Paul tells the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 5.20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you, in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Such is the case with all of us, not just the apostles, not just pastors like myself. We all are ambassadors for Christ when we evangelize to the lost. None of us are free from this command. None of us. We must come to our unbelieving family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, etc. as ambassadors for Christ. With his message on our lips. With his passion and power in our hearts. We must come pleading with people that they would be reconciled to God through Christ. That's the message. Make careful note of the wording here in this verse as well. God gave Jonah the preaching which he was to preach, right? God gave the proclamation to Paul as well that he was to deliver. And God gives the content of the message of the gospel to us all. We are not to preach some apologetic method. We are not to preach some clever icebreaker. Or some relevant soupy message to try to get people interested. And then trick them into believing in Jesus. But we are to preach, as Paul said, Christ and him crucified. That's the message. That's the message. You can have the worst kind of apologetic method. You can be completely unable to articulate yourself very well. Like Moses, as we're reading about in Exodus. You can have a stammer and a stutter. You don't have to be eloquent to point to Jesus. All we must do is look to be saved. So all then, therefore, we must do as preachers and Christians is point. Christ will do the rest of the work. That is it. That is all. No one has ever been brought to faith In Jesus Christ by some apologetic method or an icebreaker. The only people who have ever been saved have been brought to faith by the hearing of the word of God. Romans 10, 17. Now listen, in your evangelism with people around you, dear church, do not be clever, be faithful. Preach the preaching which God gave you. Which God gave you. However helpful apologetics may be, I don't have that high of an opinion of them. Either way, the power rests in the message itself. The message itself. Romans 1.16, what the Apostle Paul say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, along with my apologetic method. No, he didn't say that. He said, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As well as in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. It's the power of God. Do not be clever. Be faithful in your preaching. Second point. Jonah preaches to Nineveh. We see this in verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah's preaching. Notice first that he rose in obedience. He rose in obedience. 
Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This is the same word which is used in the original calling of Jonah when he disobeyed, remember? Chapter 1, verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now he arises to obey. In verse 3 of chapter 3, the same word, arise, arise and go, is used in each of God's calls and in each of Jonah's responses. But there's a change there, isn't there? And it's not God who changes. God does not change. His words don't change. His commands don't change. His being does not change. God's call of Jonah remained the same. But Jonah's responsive actions changed. From disobedience to obedience. When God gives us new opportunities, like Jonah here, dear church, to obey his unchanging command, we should be quick to obey. Why? God may leave off using you. He may use somebody else to reach that person. And if you've ever been used of God to win somebody to Christ, you know what a great joy and honor it is to be a part of that. To be a part of that. You don't want to miss out on that. It may be that you've been unfaithful up till now in a certain aspect of your life, of God's will for you. But heed now the voice of the Lord. Heed now. It's never too late to obey It's never too late to repent and come again to God in faith. The place which Jonah went, is said, is an exceeding great city of three days' journey. Three days' journey. This can be either referring to how large the city was, and that it was three days' journey across in its length and width, or it's referring to how long Jonah's journey would take to get there. The latter is the more favorable understanding. That is referring to how long it would take Jonah to get there, three days' journey. Jonah was likely vomited out of the fish back at the place he was originally called by God, though we don't have express statement there. But many commentators do surmise that that is the case. So he's vomited back at that same place that he's called by God originally. And now he can complete his original calling, his original journey. This means that his original journey would have taken three days. Now it's taking six days, at least. We mentioned when we did our exposition of chapter 1, the disobedience always seems like the easy way out, the easy route in the moment. But it is a harder path to disobedience. Disobedience takes us out of the will of God, takes us out of what God has for us, and then we must deal not only with the consequence of disobedience, but also must now backtrack to get back on the road that he's called us to. We have to repent. We have to start where we backtrack to where we started. So let this picture of Jonah, dear church, after adding an additional three days at least onto his journey, covered in slime from the fish's belly, bearing the marks of his shameful disobedience and walking an additional three days than he had to, motivate us to heed the word of the Lord when it first comes to us. Don't come walking in sloppy, covered in fish grime to obey when you could have just obeyed the first time. Jonah's sermon is laid out here in verse 4. He says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the sermon. Five words in Hebrew, that's it. This is quite a contrast from the other minor prophets whose entire books are basically made up of sermons. And this is the only sermon we have in Jonah, this prophet. His sermon was short and passionless. He only proclaimed judgment. He made no appeals. He made no appeals. He offered no hope. He simply stated the facts. In 40 days, you will all be destroyed. Now this reveals something of the contempt of Jonah that he had for the Assyrians. Let us learn from this. That when we share the gospel, we should labor to care for the people we are speaking to. Let us not go and evangelize the people begrudgingly or with contempt for our hearers. Some people are hard to love. That's just true. Some people are hard to love. But we must ask for divine aid to truly love our fellow image bearers. The person we are talking with Maybe someone who will spend an eternity with us in heaven. 
If we are to love them forever in eternal bliss, let us labor to love them now. Some of the people in my own life who have been my greatest joys to love and to know as brothers in Christ have been the people I had little care for, to put it nicely, when they were unbelievers. The person you are sharing the gospel with may end up being your closest brother in the faith. Your most faithful church member. Your most trusted ally and your greatest encouragement in life. Before I was saved, I am completely certain that I was a drain on those who learned to love me in the gospel. And I'm glad that they loved me through it. Now on Jonah's sermon, again, it was crass and condemning, as some commentators have mentioned. It was only judgment. Now, I desire to be careful here. I want to be very careful here. There is a place and time for hellfire and brimstone preaching. We mustn't shy away from preaching on hell and judgment simply because people have a problem with it, a bad taste in their mouths from it, or simply because it's unpopular or uncomfortable to hear or to do does not give us the right to condemn it nor neglect it, especially when the Bible, the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus himself use it readily. They use it readily. But it must always be balanced with the free offer of the gospel. Now, some people are only converted by this kind of preaching, this hellfire and brimstone preaching. We look at the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Those kinds of sermons have been greatly used by God, and some people are only ever converted by hearing some hellfire and brimstone message. It has its place, and it's necessary. Although no one is ever saved outside of the preaching of God's word, yet people are saved through different kinds of preaching of God's word. There are some people who respond in faith to a sermon full of judgment and frightful displays of God's wrath against sin, hell, Others are saved by the bare presentation of God's love and forgiveness and mercy in Christ. Still others are brought to the Lord and saved and delivered from sin by some didactic, complex teaching on some esoteric doctrine. This is why pastors must preach the whole counsel of God and why lay people must follow their example. Why? Salvation is of the Lord, chapter 2, verse 9. We cannot hate one kind of preaching or despise it, especially ones that are put forward in the Bible for us. But must also uh, remember that all people are saved by different methods of preaching. God works how and when and through what he wants. Many repented at the preaching of John the Baptist, you remember. And his message was one of repent and judgment. That was it. And many more were brought to salvation through the gentle, healing touch of Christ. God works how and when he wants. When we wound a soul, though, dear believer, when we wound a soul in the preaching of the gospel, you're sharing about sin and God's hatred for sin and the depths of their depravity and that they really will go to hell for their sin and they're not a good person. When we wound a soul through the preaching of the gospel against sin, we must then also follow it with gospel salve, gospel medicine, gospel healing. Third point, Nineveh repents. We see this in verses 5 through 9. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger and we perish not? If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Nineveh repented. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. See this picture here. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, 
we would see a sign from thee. They're saying this to Jesus, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Back over to Jonah chapter 3. Amazingly, even with Jonah's bare message of judgment, the Ninevites repent. And now they will stand in judgment over that generation that required a sign from Jesus rather than simply repenting at the same message, simply trusting in faith in a better message. The Ninevites got bare judgment and Christ is before them. They're asking for a sign from him rather than simply believing upon him. This shows us that God can use any messenger, any messenger, no matter how deficient to accomplish his purposes in salvation. I know that I am often a deficient minister, a deficient tool in the hands of God, yet he is pleased to use all of us. Salvation is of the Lord. Notice here, it says the people of Nineveh believed God. True repentance starts with belief, with belief. In fact, I would say true repentance that leads to true conversion is nothing else than turning from unbelief to belief. That is what we are to repent of. You don't clean up your life and repent of known sins, then come on to Jesus. If you're preaching that to the lost, you're preaching the wrong gospel. You preach for them to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are to repent from sin. Rebellion against God is to be turned away from and trust your whole self in Christ. It's life of unbelief to belief. Any disobedience in our life, as we saw in Jonah chapter 1, stems from unbelief. So that's the underlying, undergirding strength of all sins. That's where the power for sin comes from, is unbelief. That's what feeds into it. Our confession in chapter 15, paragraph 3, defines repentance as an evangelical grace whereby a person, being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin, does, by faith in Christ, humble himself for it with godly sorrow detestation of it and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. So repentance is a inward change holistically of the entire man. It's not just one aspect. You clean up your behavior or even clean up how you think. It's holistic in its nature. It changes the whole man. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus, not simply a better creature. It is a recognition of sin, a trusting faith in Christ, a humble dependence upon him alone for salvation, a godly sorrow, hatred, and abhorrence of one's sin, and a crying out to God alone for forgiveness, for mercy, for strength to live out of a true desire For God's glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if that's what repentance is, what then is true faith? It says they believed. Faith is a reception of Christ. It's not intellectual assent. It's a reception of Christ. A trusting in him alone. A casting yourself upon the great physician to save you. And it's always, always accompanied by regeneration. And God's adoption of us as children in Christ. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. That's true faith and repentance, a reception of Christ to the rejection of all else. To the rejection of all else. When I'm talking about marriage with people, I often remind them that receiving your bride or receiving your husband is to receive them to the rejection of all others. And marriage is used as an analogy, a type of our relationship to God. When we receive Jesus as our bridegroom, 
We receive him to the exclusion of all other saviors, of all other gods, of all other joys. And the Ninevites were given this gift of repentance at the preaching of Jonah. Just this bare giving of facts that you're going to be destroyed. Notice also that their repentance had outward manifestations. It had outward manifestations. There was a true desire evident within them to live for God and to turn away from sin. And that this true desire was accompanied by God's power to do so. In turning from the flesh and turning from sin toward God, they fasted and put on sackcloth. They no longer lived for the sinful passions. And as a way of demonstrating this, a way of demonstrating this truth that they had turned from sinful passions, and as a way to demonstrate it and practice it, they withheld from food and comfort. From food and comfort. That's what fasting and the sackcloth was. I don't know if you've ever seen sackcloth. It's kind of like burlap. It's, it's rough and uncomfortable. In fact, George Whitfield and John Wesley, before they got saved, when they were part of the Holy Club at Oxford, used to wear that all the time to try to gain uh, acceptance with God. There is an appropriate time, though, notice, to grieve over our sin. There's an appropriate time to grieve over our sin. We should be ashamed of our sin. We should hate it. And, we re- and when we repent of our sinful ways, we may have a time of mourning, of true mourning for our sin. But here's the, here's the key. It's never to remain there. It's never to remain there. We don't just sit there and think about how unworthy we are to come to God. Of course you are. Or how sinful and wretched you are. Yes, you are. In fact, you're far more sinful than you'll ever know. Far more sinful than you'll ever know. So we don't just remain there in that time of mourning. Joy in Christ and his forgiveness for us is the goal, not sorrow. We're called to have joy and peace which surpasseth all understanding. In verses 6 through 8, we have a proclamation from the king himself that the whole city was to mourn for sin and to repent Now, it's the duty of magistrates, the duty of those who hold public office, whether a monarch or whether elected governments. It's their duty to uphold God's law and to point the nation to the Savior. Our confession speaks about this. They are to be, as Romans 13 says, the rewarder of good and the punisher of the wicked. And Nineveh's king took this on. He left his throne and began repenting. It says he got down from his throne. He started repenting. He started putting his faith in God. Nineveh's king fulfilled the duty of a magistrate. He commanded the Ninevites not only to follow the procedures of outward repentance, but also he called them to personal faith in God. I don't know if you saw that in there. He said, cry mightily unto God in verse 8. Cry mightily unto God in verse 8. We pray for revival often. We, We want to see God move in amazing ways. Revival, mind you, affects every aspect of society. True revival will. Though never perfectly or fully, of course not. But it will. You look at the Puritan age, you look at all these great moves of God in the past, these revivals, there was always an influence that saturated into every part of society. And that's a great thing. And this is what happened here in Nineveh. Now, people often ask or or think about or talk about, there's discussion about, were all of the Ninevites truly converted? Well, this, the scripture is silent on that. Scripture is silent on that. But either way, it affected every part of their society, and we see that. From this, we can learn that in our own lives, and as we're sharing the gospel with other people, we must know that we must have believing and turning from sin. Believing and turning from sin, if we wish to live for God. What is required to be saved? Faith alone. But if you want to have life in God, if you want to live for him and serve him, there must be both. This is why the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, and he says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? That's a motivation to live for God. You're saved. Great. That's amazing. Praise the Lord. 
And that was of nothing of yourself. That was only by faith, by grace through faith. But then now, do we live in sin? No. If we have believed upon Christ unto salvation, there will be a true desire to live for God. So it's not a matter of what you need to do to keep your salvation. Of course, that's absurd. We reject that. But it's a matter of what you'll want to do. You'll desire to obey him, however small and pathetic that might be in your life. There's times that I don't have a whole lot of desire to live for God. I don't have a whole lot of desire to obey him. But there's always something there. There's always a seed of a desire to live for God and his glory in the true Christian. And not only will there be that desire, we're also commanded. We are commanded to live for him. That's why, again, in Romans 6, 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. It is a great joy to live for God, to grow in holiness. To grow in holiness. In this message, this sermon of Jonah, there's also hope of salvation for the penitent. There is hope here. For the king says, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? That's verse 9. So the hope wasn't that strong. It was still there. The hope was true, though it was weak. And this is largely due to the deficiency of Jonah's message and his preaching. He offered no promise of hope to the Ninevites, just the certainty of their destruction. However, he desi- God desired that they repent and be delivered from his own destruction so that he might use Assyria, he might use the Ninevites to be the means by which he smashed his own people in 40 years. It's amazing seeing the decree of God in all of this. So from this hope of the Ninevites, though it was weak, let us learn the usefulness of the warning passages in the New Testament, of the warning passages in the New Testament. They are there for our benefit, not to scare us, not for us to doubt our salvation, but for our benefit. Though our salvation is sure, steadfast in Christ, and we can do nothing to lose it, for it is God who holds us, not us who holds him. Though that is true, we do not earn our salvation, yet we must give heed to God's commands and labor to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, as Philippians 2.12 says, that we pursue holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, Hebrews 12.14. All the while knowing and trusting and believing that it is God alone who worketh in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. We can't just boil it all down, gloss it over, and say we don't have to obey God because we're saved by grace through faith, or that it's no big deal if we disobey him. But we also can't, on the other side, then say it's about works. It's about keeping your salvation. Or have some bar that God didn't give us. Some standard of five sins that I don't like that I'm going to make sure that I test everyone else's salvation by. That's not what we need to do either. There's very wicked people that are saved. And sometimes, starting way lower than us, it looks different as their sanctification progresses. Thankfully, thankfully, We have a more sure hope than the Ninevites had. Their hope was a little sketchy. We do not have such a hope. We have a steadfast anchor in the soul, the scriptures tell us, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jonah gave them no help of salvation. But Jesus, the greater Jonah, the greater Jonah, gives us all hope in himself. In John 6, 37, Jesus says this to the Jews that came to him, for just simple worldly things, bread. They wanted to be fed in their stomach. And that was it. They didn't care about their souls. He says this to them. He says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. There's God's shalls and wills again. Whoever is given to Jesus by the Father shall come to him. And whoever comes to him in faith will not be cast out will not be cast out. We have that certainty, that hope given to us. Not like the poor Ninevites. Therefore, in this room today, if you're sitting here and you don't know Christ, 
If you be not saved, come unto Christ. Do not waste another day. The scriptures tell us that today is the day of salvation. Do not hold off. Do not put off any longer thinking that you are saved when you are not. Follow the Ninevites in their repentance, but also follow the, follow the Apostle Paul in his assurance. We want both. Fourth, last point, God delivers Nineveh. We see this in verse 10. And God saw their works, that they had turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. And he did it not. God saw their works. What does that mean? Well, not that their works of repentance were the grounds upon which they were saved. But their works, their sorrow for sin, their belief upon God, were the evidences that they had fulfilled what God had called them to do. There's a lot of discussion I see in places about evidences of faith and and how do we weigh those in our own lives and the lives of others. And there's legalism on one side, and there's antinomianism on the other side, and we do need to be careful. And I, and I feel that in our day and age, there needs to be a little bit more emphasis on the grace and through faith than there does on simple evidences of salvation. But we still need both. But I see a fear, something that makes me afraid in the reform movement of weighing works, looking at works, looking at these five things you shouldn't do, looking at our works instead of on Christ. I've actually heard people talking about Jonah here, chapter 3 and verse 10, that he saw their works and why we need works, why we need to repent of sin. You need to repent of literally all known sin to be saved. That's a false gospel. That's a false gospel. We are saved by grace through faith, and in that same chapter, Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship created unto good works. So the good works flow out of that. The good works flow out of that, not first. So their works, God saw that he had called them to repent, and they repented. Therefore, he left off. It says God repented. Now, this is anthropomorphic language. God does not change. God does not decide, oh, I'm going to do this, and oh, things change. I'm going to now do this. Like I've heard open theists. I actually had a conversation with an open theist a couple years ago. It was mind-blowing to me. That guy believes a false gospel. That is not the same Jesus that I worship. He said literally that the prophecies in the Old Testament were just God's best guesses about Jesus. That it was not Jesus and God's intention for Jesus to be crucified, but that he saw that it happened. Well, these are the cards that I've been dealt. I'll work it for good. That's false gospel. That is not the God of the scriptures. So this word repent, God repented from the evil that he had in store for them, is anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language. This is God's gracious way of speaking to us who cannot understand the deep things of God. We see God speaking to us this way in scripture all the time. In a way that we can understand. He condescends to our understanding, the theologian said. John Calvin himself said that in scripture, God gets down on our level and prattles and coos to us as a father to an infant. He uses baby talk, in other words. Such is the great distance between our understanding and God's that he gets on our level, gets in our face and coos and prattles to us, John Calvin said. So when we see anthropomorphism here in the scripture, that's what it's about. God's repenting here is simply his fulfilling in time of what he had decreed to do at the repenting of Nineveh. Let's look next at the hope which the Ninevites were given. It was very slender, very slender indeed. They had no revelation of the character of the God of Israel, yet they repented. They didn't realize that he was a forgiving God. That was never told them. That he was a merciful God. That was not told to them, yet they still repented. They knew nothing of the atoning sacrifice or the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. They weren't told that, yet they still repented. They had received, they received no invitation to seek the Lord. They didn't even receive a command to repent. They just, Jonah just said, in 40, or in 40 days you're going to die. That's it. Jonah's message was basically given in a way where repent or not. 
doesn't matter to me. Do whatever you want. It couldn't hurt to repent. Nothing was said against the repenting. Or even for the repenting. Just in 40 days shall be destroyed. The positive argument for repentance was also slender. The mission of the prophet was simply a warning. And even a warning implies a degree of mercy. It was slender, but it was there. So even when we hear God warning us in the scriptures or through our brothers and sisters in Christ or other people even, realize that God is merciful enough to you to even send you this message, to even give you that conviction. Use it. Don't waste it. Now, let's end with this, that we have greater hope in Jesus than the Ninevites had or that Jonah gave or that Jonah had. We have the full revelation of Christ, not just in type and shadows any longer, but before us in fulfillment. He has completely and utterly fulfilled the law on our behalf. The prophecies are completed. He actually has died, and he has died for us. I do not believe in a universal atonement of any kind. I do not believe the scriptures teach us such a doctrine. Christ died for his people. He either, these are the options we have. He either died for everyone in general and no one in particular. That means no one's sins are actually paid for. They're just hypothetically paid for. Or he died for our sins. His people's sins. Those who believe in him. And again, that's why we must come unto him. And as we've seen in chapter 2, we must have an urgency about us in reaching the lost, those around us. You are ambassadors for Christ, dear believer. Dear believer, you are ambassadors for Christ. You can come to people with a message they cannot hear anywhere else and belongs to no one else but to Christ alone. Preach Christ and him crucified and you will see people come to faith in him. That is the message through which God works and none other. And that's a true hope. We can come unto Jesus. So unbeliever, come thou unto Jesus. Come thou unto Jesus. Return unto thy God, O Christian. He awaits thee with open arms and loving heart. His sacrifice is sufficient to all who come unto him. Jonah, as we've seen, points us to Christ. Even now in his message of judgment, he points us to Christ. Let us come unto him. As the hymn writer said, trust not the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. John 3.16. There's an interesting passage here. Some of us may know it. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those who believe upon the Son shall be saved. And he will glorify them in heaven. He will have his people. He has paid for them. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come before thee. Lord, I leave on the cutting room floor anything that was not helpful or false. And ask, Lord, that thou would apply those things which are true and good for thy people. In Jesus' name, amen.